The year is 2009. And will you let us lick it? The film, Dogtooth. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we endeavor to find the hundred best films of all time. We have culled the AFI top 100 list, and now we are off on our own list, our own journey with little mini-series. And at the end of every one of our mini-series, we turn it over to you to pick the final one. And we have been talking about fucked up families for quite some time. And what better way than to end on probably the most fucked up family we talked about, which is the family in the film Dogtooth. Oh boy, Amy, Uh, this was a (laughs) shocker. I can't wait to talk to you about this, but we are also in a new year and I want to address that. And I also want to address my past mistakes because, you know, last week, I feel like when we talked about Home Alone, I really devalued somebody's comedy prowess. And I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but I feel like I did not give Joe Pesci enough credit for all of the comedy performances that he turned in. Um, and I wanted to play for you this clip. Excuse me, excuse me, fellas. Excuse, excuse me, guys. Uh, this is tuna. See, I hate tuna, okay? I refuse to get stuck with tuna now. Hey, Leo, don't eat the tuna. Oh, where were you? I just said that. I'm not eating it. Oh, I'm not eating tuna. Good. Come on, let's go back. Hey, we're not going back, so just shut up. Oh, sure. Don't go back. Okay, okay, don't go back. That's it. That's oh, what they want. Let me tell you, can I give you two guys a friendly piece of advice, okay? Don't ever go up to the drive-thru, okay? Always walk up to the counter. You know what? Okay, okay, okay. Okay. They fuck you at the drive-thru, okay? They fuck you at the drive-thru. They know you're gonna be miles away before you find out you got fucked, okay? They know you're not gonna turn around and go back. So they don't care who gets fucked. Oh, Leo gets. Okay, sure. I don't give a fuck. I'm not eating this tuna, okay? Shut up! You know, Amy, I forgot. That's really where I got to know Joe Pesci. I think I view him as such like a a hard-edged dude and think about Home Alone as being like the lone like comedic performance, but he was doing that. He was in Easy Money. He had a singing career. I mean, this guy, I, I think, why do we view him as a serious guy when he has a body of work that is very broad? <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I mean, my cousin Vinny. Yes. It's oh true. my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I mean, maybe, maybe that then is the Pesci that should go on the list. The best funny Pesci since I've been such a hard ass about getting rid of Goodfellas. And since yeah. the listeners also agreed with me that Goodfellas can go, we can't lose Joe Pesci, though. So we'll no. find the right Pesci. I like that plan. Let's do that plan. I don't know why Joe Pesci erased his existence from my mind because those performances were so meaningful to me. Like, those are the ways that I got to know Pesci. But now I only view him as like Raging Bull and even honestly Irishman Pesci. Like I don't I don't laugh, I don't do anything, I'm just a serious motherfucker. Yeah, so anyway, I just want to give him some props. <laughs> now for some reason you've got me imagining an alternate Hollywood history where instead of Bob Hoskins, it was Joe Pesci and who framed Roger Rabbit. Well, oh, by the Can way, I would love to see Amy, my my mind is now starting to even open up more. Because do you remember The Super, where he played a slumlord? <laughs> or or there was a movie, I believe, that J.J. Abrams wrote it. It was like him and Danny Glover, and it was called, like, Gone Fishing. Like, 
Holy shit, I'm like, we're at like eight heads in a duffel bag. My, I just opened up a Pesci comedy wormhole right now. Like, there are so <laughs> many that I've totally, I mean, and with honors is not a, a comedy, but there, but it was kind of like him doing his like Dead Poet Society. Man, oh man, why? Why did I do that? Why did I cut him out? He's got so, so much weird. good stuff. You know, I've always yeah. imagined Joe Pesci being in his own little bubble. Like, if you want a Joe Pesci, you go get a Joe Pesci. Like, there's not really yeah. a Pesci replacement. But now I'm wondering if there was a period in the 80s, especially, like, after something like Twins, where there's this, like, head-to-head between Pesci and Danny DeVito. Like, who was going to get the job? Who was going to oh, be, like, the funny, loudmouth guy? And then Bob Hoskins is like, oh, I'm from England, and here I am to try to take some of your thunder. And if there's, like, a, a short, bald man off, and they're all just gunning. I, I Here's what I think about I believe the PI, like, because Joe Pesci did his, we're really going deep into Pesh, um, uh, but Joe Pesci did his, like, he did a movie where he was like um, that famous photographer. Remember that movie? It was like uh, Ouija, right? He played oh, Ouija. Uh, it was a, a movie called did... Public Eye, I believe. Yeah, the crime um, photographer. Yes. So he did that movie. And I feel he's more of that, where Bob Hoskins felt more like a P.I. to me. I don't know if Joe mm-hmm. Pesci, I mean, look, Joe Pesci could do anything, but he, Joe Pesci feels a little too street for, uh, for P.I. work. I don't feel like he could have infiltrated Toontown. I think he would have been too aggressive. <laughs> You're right. Maybe, maybe he just would have voiced one of the weasels. All right. I like that. Um, so, Amy... Uh, we are bidding adieu to fucked up families. And I've actually, I know I say at the end of every one of these, I enjoyed this one a whole hell of a lot. We are going to get a chance to hear what your feedback is on Twitch. We're going to go back to Twitch. Uh, so stay tuned to our social media channels. Uh, we'll let you know when that will be. But we love to go on Twitch and go through and just really focus on your comments and talk about what you liked what you didn't like. And we'll do that again. Um, always really fun. So we'll go through our whole uh, family uh, thing and uh, also on there reveal what we're doing next. But we can also, I think, because of the new year and holidays, we can reveal what we're going to be doing next at the end of this episode. Give you a reason to stay tuned. How about dun, that? Dun, 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 dun. Ah. Hey, can I just say to you, the listeners at home, y'all are so delightfully screwed up because I don't think I would have guessed that Dogtooth would be our audience pick for the for the effed up nope. families film. And y'all went there. Y'all like legit went there. And the more I've thought about it, and we're going to really get into this in full the episode, but the more I've thought about it, what a perfect ending to effed up families. Because Absolutely. in talking about these families, we've wound up talking about so many different aspects of the world, you know, through the source of the family. And then to wind up with a film like this, that is so allegorical in its use of, of the family. It make, it feels like a good summary of this series because here, I'll even let Yorgos Lanthimos himself, the director of Dog Theus, talk about what you can do with the family film. Well, I think the family's, you know, it's a very representative structure of, you know, uh, you know the society and humanity in general. I mean, the way it organizes it, itself. Uh, and you can see, you know, a reflection of family in every kind of uh, group of people, uh, you know, or bigger groups, smaller groups. There are even similarities in, you know, in relationships be- between two people, I think. There's various uh, situations, behaviors, and themes that are very similar. I love that sentiment because only now, at the very end of this entire series, did I think, right. 
what if we took the ideas we've been exploring about effed up family films and we use it to like take it even one twist further to the world of allegory? You know, whether we're talking about the Tenenbaums or whether we're talking about the McAllisters, that all of these films are even about something bigger than the family unit themselves. So for that, I say, Yorgos Lanthimos, thank you. And thank you, listeners, for really adding a great final cap to this effed up family series. And, you know, I know we're going to be talking about it really in detail. I just want to say, like, Yorgos Lanthimos is a director that I am truly uh, in awe of. I like him so much. And I found The Lobster, probably like most people, and then... I don't know why Dogtooth never registered to me. I heard the title, but I didn't know it was him. And when I saw his name pop up last night as I was watching, I was like, oh, it felt to me like what a hidden gem because I'm always so excited to see what he does. I I saw one of his films when I was in um, Toronto at the film festival, the premiere of the one with Colin Farrell and um, Nicole oh, Kidman. Uh- uh, yeah, what was that one? Killing of a Sacred Deer. Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was it just to see his films in a theater uh, is a really special mm-hmm. is a special moment. I, I I I kind of put it up there with the way I saw Jackass. You're just you don't know how to react. The movies all follow a similar pattern. We'll talk about it all, but I was so excited. And if you if you're not familiar with his work, I could also see how this is off putting. I just really think he's a special director with such a unique voice. It's true. And if you have not seen Dogtooth yet, I realized while we were prepping for this episode, you can see it for free in a bunch of places. Tubi has it if you don't mind putting up with ads. If you have Shudder, it's on Shudder too. So you are in for a treat to watch Dogtooth for the first time. I am so happy. Amy, let's get ready to Secatarissimo. The year is 2009. Governments in the U.S. and around the world pump trillions of dollars into the economy in response to the ongoing financial crisis. The World Health Organization declares the H1N1 swine flu a global pandemic. Familiar? Somali pirates hijack a U.S. cargo ship that was under control of Captain Phillips. The story inspires the film Captain Phillips, starring Tom Hanks as the guy in charge, Captain Phillips, who saves the day. A U.S. flight was derailed after being struck by a flock of geese, and the pilot, Captain Sully Sullenberger, made a successful crash landing on the Hudson River. The story inspires the film Sully, starring Tom Hanks as Sully, another guy who saves the day. Michael Jackson dies, and Barack Obama is inaugurated as the 44th president of the United States. This year's movies include Avatar, Up, Twilight, New Moon, Hangover, and today's film, Dogtooth. The film is in Greek. We won't really play a clip, so maybe, Amy, just tell us who's in it and uh, what's it about. All right. I will happily do that. Uh, Dogtooth is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who we know today as like the filmmaker of The Lobster, Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Favorite. This is what I would probably call like his breakthrough film, where the world was like, who are you? Um, and he shot it in his home country of Greece, which at the time he had made it was at a pretty low point in creative film exports, which he helped turn around. Um, Dogtooth is this really constrained movie. You've got six characters shot in one house, roughly $300,000 is what it costs to make. Wow. And yet what Dogtooth was saying, or really like what people interpreted Dogtooth as saying, um, it grabs so much attention around the globe. It won like the Uncertain Regard at Cannes in 2009. It was nominated here in America for a foreign language Oscar at, in 2010. And the story is about two parents and their three children who live in a compound somewhere in Greece. The father is able to leave the compound. He can come and go and he can go to work. But the kids, who are two girls and a boy, they have never left the house. 
And since they are now in their teens and early 20s, we see how they have been shaped by this really insular world that their parents have created for them and how impossible it's about to be to keep them quarantined from society. Especially because the one crack in the armor is that the dad has decided that the boy needs to get laid. And so he brings in a young female stranger. Now, one of my favorite details of this film is that the parents have brainwashed the kids with this new vocabulary. You know, for example, in the film, the word zombie, they've been told means small yellow flower. So in the spirit of inventing a language, the number one song on the charts when Dogtooth premiered at Cannes the week of May 18th, 19, 2009, it could not be better because it is by the band who lived to coin new words like Fergalicious. This song is from the Black Eyed Peas and it is called Boom Boom Pow. Visual shit, I got that boom boom. Out of bang. I like that boom boom pow. Them chickens jogging my style. They try to copy my swagger. I'm on that next shit now. I'm so 3008. You sold 2000 and late. I got that boom boom boom. That future boom boom boom. Let me get it now. Gotta get that I'm so excited to talk to you about this. I also feel like. It's a tricky movie to talk about because there's so much subtlety in this film. And I, I found it to be, um, in a way, a little hard to really get into the film as much as I want to because I think there's so much detail in the language. And reading it is fine. And I think you get the broad strokes. But I feel like if you are a Greek speaker... This movie is going to hit you even harder. Do you do you find that at all? I mean, am I being weird about that? I don't know why this movie pushed me away a little bit with the subtitles. Huh. Well, I mean, I was thinking something similar, which is that this is the first time I've rewatched Doc Tooth since seeing the rest of Yorgos Lanthimos's later work. Mm-hmm. Like for me, my story with Doc Tooth is. You know, I'm uh, one of the L.A. Film Critics um, Association members, yes. which means like every year we watch a bunch of films. We get a bunch you of love awards to brag out. about it. Yeah, I know. I'm always going on and on about it. I used to be treasurer. I was like, really oh, cool. wow. Yeah. You're like, Ma Rainey is the best. And I won't hear anyone <laughs> telling me anything else. I know. We just a couple weeks ago had our vote, which is usually, you know, it's like 50 yeah. plus people arguing about what's good on a Zoom. Wasn't it so much better to be like over Zoom? Six hours. You know, in person, we have bagels. It's a lot oh, okay. more delicious. But anyway, so what happens in the in LA Film Critics is like right at the end of the year, we get flooded with screeners and there's oh, we love foreign films in that group. And so I remember there was a member, James Rocky, who was like, everyone has to watch Dogtooth. Nobody has heard of this movie. You all have to watch Dogtooth. And he like really hammered it. And I watched this movie and I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? And it really has been since like, seeing more of who Yorgos Lanthimos is and how he sees the world, I've been able to actually, I think, have a better grip on this movie. This Mm. movie makes more sense to me now that I know how his characters speak when they speak in English, if that makes sense. Like, I hear how he likes them to deliver lines, and now I can hear them delivering the lines in his style in Greek. Oh, that's really interesting. I think I also took what I knew of him and brought it into this film. So I, I definitely was leaning forward a lot. I just felt like... These little scenes, these little moments, like, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I'll bring it up. Like when the father is whispering to the mother in the kitchen, they're, they're having this conversation and he, he's not saying any words. He's just like mouthing what, you know, he's talking to her, but he's just mouthing the words, like seeing it pop up on screen. Like, I feel like I was missing some of the more subtle cues because I was reading a little bit more. And I think there's a lot of stuff going on in silence here, which is why... The silent set pieces, I think, 
worked really well for me. I mean, whether that's the father putting the fish in the pond or the daughter punching herself in the face or the son, you know, killing, uh, you know, the, the cat in the backyard, like those, those moments definitely resonated more because I could just really be fully invested in it. I, um, because there is so much done with glances and looks and, and just the way characters interact. And I wasn't able to be so focused on that, which I think I would have been if it was in English. You know, I hadn't thought of that, but I wonder if part of why this film struck a nerve around the globe is because so much of it is silent. You know, in yeah. that kind of like Chaplin can travel anywhere way. Yeah. Where, like, I think a lot of what seems to happen when this film came out is that people watch this movie and it felt approachable because of all of the silence. Right. Like Yorgos Lanthimos himself has been like, I have heard people from around the world, you know, like this film played Cannes. I did all these interviews there from journalists everywhere. I've like talked to people all over the world about this film. And he's like, every country has this different impression of what it's about. You know, like there's space in there for people to project, you know, like he said that people watching it say like in America, they really clued into this idea of homeschooling. They're like, oh, it's a film about oh, wow. homeschooling your kids, you know, because that's such a big topic here. And other people like projected, they're like, oh, is this a film about, you know, fascism in like this country and like a fascist tyrant? Is this a political Interesting. film? And England was like, oh, is this a film about how the world's become too dangerous for our kids? Because they were in a, a spirit of like really worried. You know, the Daily Mail is always like, this kid was kidnapped. Right. And it, they, I think there was one of those big crises happening around then. So like every culture took this incredibly different meaning from the silent things we're watching. And I, I think what, again, what, to the clip that you played at the beginning of the episode, what I really loved about this story, and I think why it holds this much weight, is because it's a core tenant. No matter who you are, where you live, what you feel, it, there is this instinct as a parent to protect your kid. Right. And that if we if we eliminate everything else, this movie is truly about that. Right. It's about I am keeping them safe. I'm going to monitor them. I'm going to do this. And we all can relate to that. And and then everything else outside of it, we can dive into and pick apart. But that is such a simple conceit. And what I love about his films, and I, I don't think the favorite does this as much. Um, but all the films leading up to the favorite, now that I've seen this, they really let the audience play catch up. Like mm-hmm. the movie is going forward and you happen to be dropped in and it's up to you to figure it out. And when the things start to click in, all of a sudden you want to go back and rewatch it because you feel like it feels like you're tuning in in the middle of a film and and you have to and and the rewatchability of it is so great. I mean, I remember feeling like that with uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's like, what's going on here? What's this relationship? What? I, I don't know. And am I dumb for not knowing? You feel dumb. But he doesn't. He tells the right story. Um, but that idea of revealing crucial plot points, not like who's a murderer, but revealing backstory, fleshing out the world, really painting this picture uh, is really fulfilling in real time. It, it, I think it makes you actually more interested in a drama and his stuff is so fucked up. But I think 
by doing it like that, you can accept the fucked upness of it, if that makes sense. Like, because it's not all coming at you at once. It's like not an exposition dump. It's like, oh, oh, and that, and that, and that. And by the end of the movie, you're like, oh, shit, they did all of that stuff. But it, it was doled out over 90 minutes. Right. Because like my least favorite thing that a movie can do in the short list. I, yes. it, I was just ran, ranting about this a couple of weeks ago on Twitter. Is that they withhold something like the example I always use is like the kid died, the their kid, kid died, and I you don't find out that their the kid died until the third act. And I'm like, God, who cares? Like, show me that the kid died and then make it a movie about a kid dying. You know, do something, right. but don't just be like, we will slowly reveal to you a piece of information that you didn't have. It's I a piece of information it, used as a not, trap to be like, you didn't know, you fucking idiot. And that's why it's dramatic. And that's not as effective. No, I think. This, yeah. Yeah. This is like you're playing catch up. Like he gives you everything. I mean, even in that first scene alone, you have the kids. They're all in the bathroom, but he shoots them separately in the bathroom. You don't really realize that they're mm-hmm. in the same room together for a beat. They're listening to this tape that's telling them, you know, the meanings of words that we all know is not we all know are not correct. You know, a C is not a leather armchair. And you have that immediate just thing of something is very wrong in this world. And then you see the kids who were being shot individually, which kind of shows isolation. And yet they're in this room together, even though he doesn't show them together. They're like isolated, but trapped in the same place. Yes. And the first thing they decided to do was like have this competition about who can hold their finger underneath hot water the longest. And they talk about the rules and how to make it fair. And you are just plunged into this mindset that is completely alien, you know, but you're going to be catching up to it and understanding it and getting a feel for how these people think right away. And this film, that whole scene that I think sets up so much of what we're about to know was improvised. You know, that's a lot of how Yorgos Lanthimos likes to work. He was so he told them what he want that he wanted them to kind of make of a scene. And okay. then they improvise the whole thing. They improvise the game. They improvise their questions. They improvise the rules. They these actors came up with it because he's trying to create a sense of a sense of spontaneity, even though his films feel so kind of regimented and clean and orderly and quiet. I think that that feeling the the film is also shot on one lens. I think it's like a 50 millimeter lens, an anamorphic lens so that the movie doesn't really change its look. So in a way, it's very flat and everything looks about the same, right? Like it's it's voyeuristic at points and it's very plain at points. And I feel like you're getting to see I mean, the budget of the movie probably dictates this as well. I think his films are very stylish uh, besides this one. All of them, you know, they all have this look to them. And this is so bare bones that it almost feels like you are watching the video of the father. You are brought into this this kind of colder, weirder world. I, I think the style, style works so good with that. Yeah, it has an airlessness to it. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize how many of the films you were doing in this whole section had that kind of still camera movement. You know, here I am yeah. and you're observing like... You're 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 what, like 30 feet back as you're watching the son be terrified of a cat and you're seeing how this plays out and him coming in with the garden shears. And then at the end, maybe we'll get like a very direct observational close up of a dead cat. Sorry, there's a dead cat in this movie. We will get it kind of done in almost like a biology textbook way. You know, it's not like done, yes. done. Here's a dead cat. Zooming, zooming, zooming. Well, I mean, am I I mean, again, we don't even understand the idea that they think the brother is beyond the wall until later in the film. Like when you first see him yelling at the wall saying like, I wash the car better than you. I do that. Like you are like you are looking at it in this way. You are you are an observer in this house. And as information comes out, you start to it's almost like 
when you're in an awkward conversation, you walk into somebody's conversation, you're trying to put together the pieces. And I remember like that first scene, like, I mean, we don't know that the, the sun's beyond the wall, like in that first scene, do we? I mean, no, no. Cause yeah. at first it's been so long since I watched it. I thought he was expressing competition and rivalry towards his dad. I thought it was yes, more of an edible thing. I thought yeah, it was that's like, what I thought yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, and then you find out later it's the brother when when the after the daughter has been like secretly slicing off pieces of cake and then yeah. throwing them over the wall. And you go through this little I, I felt like I went through like a little emotional kind of whirlwind with that. I was like, oh, she's stealing cake. That means the daughter has a little bit of trickery in her and she's a she knows how to get what she wants for herself mm. and that she's figured out a way, but it's not even for her. Then you realize like she's doing it to be nice to somebody else and it shifts again. Yeah. Yeah. And we never understand even what the brother is. Like, did they have a brother who died? Did they have a brother that was sent away? There's this whole backstory about why they even think there's a brother out there that's never explained. It's just there to be filled in with the imagination. The world that we are introduced to in the very first moment, and this is something that you caught, and I think this is where his films work so much better on a second viewing, because I'm not picking up on that. When that recorder is going on in the beginning, I'm like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in this haze of I'm hearing things, I'm not putting it together exactly. I'm looking at them. I'm like, is this movie like Shallow Grave? Remember that movie? Like, there's a bunch. These are a bunch of people like living in a flat. Are they like fucking twisted people? Are we going to reveal there's a dead body on the floor? Like, I'm. I don't even know, like, I'm, I am uncomfortable from moment one. So I'm not looking as intently at that recorder, but it's set up in that first moment. Everything is a lie, right? Mm -hmm. There doesn't have to be any truth to it. The fact, like, when the father comes home covered in blood, like, we don't know what is, we don't know what is real. And the, and the movie doesn't even want to tell us that. Like, you know, it's basically... We are as confused as the kids behind the wall. And the couple times that we go out uh, past the wall, you know, it reminded me in many ways of, um, what's that M. Night movie? The one, uh, The Village. Um, mm, mm-hmm. You know, this idea of like a town trying to protect itself from the outside world and they keep these big monsters, you know, uh, which is a cool theory. I, I didn't think that movie was very good. But um, but I love that idea of protecting your flock. But... The father's fucked up. I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying the father is, I think the mother is complicit, but he is actively fucking them. Like he is not, it's not just like I'm protecting you. He's fucking them over too. It's like the parents, do you ever hear the story about the, uh, the parents who taught their kids Klingon? It's like this, this, these two parents only taught their kids Klingon and they the kid was taken away by child protective services. Um, because oh, it's not even not even a language that other humans speak only Klingon only Klingon um oh and God. I remember reading that and I was like and it and again this is like years ago um but I remember that because it's like oh you can create whatever reality you want and and I will be honest I see it right now with COVID too like you know you see the realities that people create and and as my kids you know, we're not out playing with each other, you know, but like they're, you, they come home from school or they say, oh, this so-and-so kid said this in school. This kid said that. And you're like, oh, there's, there are these realities. And, and some parents have to like lie. And, you know, we all lie about the tooth fairy, spoiler alert. And we all, you know, Santa, all this sort of stuff. But wait, the tooth fairy is a lie. Tooth fairy doesn't, uh, well, what happens is the tooth fairy comes to your bedroom, the parents bedroom, gives you the money. Uh, Cause they don't oh. like to go into the kid's bedroom because of a, a lawsuit that some, 
some right. issue with like a legal thing about being near kids. Um, no, that but I don't sense. know. I just love that idea that it also speaks to the delicate balance that parents have to play. You are modeling behavior. And if you are weird, if you are crazy, I mean, I'm even watching like uh, Queen's Gambit. Sorry, I'm throwing a lot at you. But like this idea, like, like parents can dictate how fucked up you are. You may not even have a chance in this world if you enter in with a fucked up parent. And that could be a fucked up parent who's an alcoholic. That could be a fucked up parent who is abusive. That could be a fucked up. You know, there's so many ways to do it. Um, and But it seems to me that this parent is sadistic on some level, this father. Even though his want is a pure, his, his intention is sadistic. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it feels like he wants to raise the perfect children. You know, it's almost it's almost like um, eugenics or something. He makes like what do they do all day? They exercise. He watches right. what they eat, and that's about it. Like he wants them to be in really good shape and clean minded. You know, it's like this almost I don't know Nazi ish ideal. Like you will be the ultimate empty headed, physically fit soldier. You know, yeah. perfect looking and skinny. The kids are all very slender. You know, yeah. like, it makes a big deal of like how slender they seem to be. And yet, like in his quest to make the perfect and perfectly well-behaved child, it's completely doomed to failure because of the way he has to do nothing but lie. Like to create purity, he has to lot fill their entire world with lies. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think he's trying to create perfect kids. They, I, I think he is like, why would you get is why would you be creating that tape? Why would you be lying about a brother behind the wall? Like, like. The for lies are control to keep well, them I guess, be, to keep them from leaving to keep them. Okay, there. okay, all right, all right, yeah. I guess the question is like, what are you going to do with your perfect kids once you have them? Yeah, like where does where's the end game? Like, what are they going what are they going to do when you die? Like, what what now? I don't know. I mean, and then you take that and kind of say like, well, what if it's what if the father is then representing a political leader? You know, where does that get you? Where where do we right. wind up when we follow that thread? Like. Here we are trying to create again, like a perfect society. Like, is a perfect society doomed to failure? Or like, or like, what does a, or what do you have to like say to your populace to keep them well behaved? I, I think that anytime you are an unchecked leader in any way, you are doomed to create something that is not sound. Right? Like there, like when there's no system of checks and balances, and that's not saying like. I think that that's in creative things too. And I know I just said, well, Yorgos is such a creative entity, but he's not working in a vacuum. There are other people that are adding to it. He's letting improv take over. He's, you know, there's, there's an energy there. You may know what you want, but you're using other people to help get it. But this father seems like he's working in a vacuum. And the way that the kids perform for him, the way that he performs for them, I think that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, it's a new saying that no one's ever said. And I, I, I think that that movie, that speaks to this to a certain degree. Like, yes, it may have started as a lie or two. And then it got more elaborate. And it's almost like getting high on your own supply. It's like, oh, yeah, and what about this? I'm like, fuck, up over here. You know, it's, I don't even think it's Ill, as ill-intentioned as it, I don't think it's ill-intentioned. I think it's become unhealthy and ill-intentioned. No, I think you're exactly right. Like, I think you could imagine a future where it started as, I'm going to protect my kids. You know, like, like they're not going to eat junk food. They're not going right. to watch bad TV. They're not going to have friends who are bad influences. They're not going to go to a school that I don't believe in who's going to fill their head with stuff that I think is wrong. And it just grows and grows and grows. I mean, Yogo said that to him, when he came up with the idea for the film, he wanted the parents to be doing this out of love. 
in that they mm-hmm. come up with, in his words, like, quote, ridiculous ideas to protect them and to lie to them so that they can protect them. And they think it's the best thing that they can do for their children. I think that they're so stupid that they actually do believe that. Right. Well, yeah. And by the way, we like just because you and this is I, I this goes back to I know I've been talking a lot about parents and this whole thing and, and maybe associating with myself as a parent too much. But just because you are a parent, just because you are a boss, just because you have a dog does not mean that you are going to be a good owner or a good person. Right. And I think there's so many parents out there just because you have a child doesn't mean that you are, you know, it's like. You look at them and go, well, they're parents. Of course, they're going to have the best interest. But we don't know what they were like before parents. Like, you don't know. You know, there's like this, this, um, you know, we don't know that much. And we know we see a little bit about him. And he seems really, he seems unhinged. In the real world, he seems, you know, like that weird guy where you big, oh, did you know that, you know, Stephen had a whole house of family and they were all there. And, you know, they, all the kids were actually, they were all, uh, they weren't even his kids. They were all stolen kids, you know, or whatever. It's stolen kids, uh, you know. But uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's an element of this movie where that could be a part of that. Well, yeah. And then I think the real world wound up making this film feel even darker in a different way right when it came out. Because like Yorgo started working on this film and like shooting it before the Joseph Fritzl case. Do you remember that? You know, I do remember it a little bit, but refresh my memory. Because I was in my research, I was reading a lot about it. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I get this 100%. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Joseph Fritzl, um, he was in Germany. And the story with him is he had a daughter named Elizabeth. And when she was 18, he tricked her into like a basement lair that he had dug out in a back shed, like an underground lair. He tricked her into going there and then he locked her there. And then he kept her in there for, I think, over 20 years. She had seven of his kids. Some of them stayed down there with her. Some of them he pretended were foundlings that she had left on his porch. He pretended she ran away and that every so often she would just like come by the house, secretly leave a kid on the porch. And it seems like his wife believed him or maybe wanted to believe him. Uh, but yeah, like she eventually got out, like, and this story broke, like right w- before the film came out, you know, this, this kind of horrible evil man, like, and this guy Fritzl, like he said it for himself, like he said, quote, I had to do something. I had to create a place where I could keep Elizabeth by force, if necessary, away from the outside world. And he himself, like he grew up during the Nazi era. Like he was 10 years old when the Nazi era ended. And so he said for him, like he think he thinks that maybe that influenced his views about what decency and good behavior was. And he like to this day has refused to apologize or show any real remorse for what he did to his own daughter, for his grandkids or also his kids. Like his defense of his own behavior is he said, you know, just look into the cellars of other people. You might find other families and girls down there. Like, I'm not bad. Everybody else is probably doing this, too, because it clearly makes sense. Um, I, I, you know, it's so interesting because it's like, um, we, you know, there's a movie that came out two years ago, The Room. There's mm-hmm. like this. And, and there are these cases that kind of pop up every now and then, you know, it, uh, you know, oh, she was in a shack. She they were there. They were tied up. And we hear this all the time. Um, this want to control someone. Absolutely. And I think. If we go out further, it's just a want and desire, right? That we all have on some level. And not not and I think there can be healthy ways of dealing with this, but this idea of like this is the unchecked version of it. I need I I don't trust anyone to the world. I don't trust that anything will be okay. And and 
and yes, it's malicious and I'm not advocating for this in any way, but it is, it is an innate desire of, if I can just keep everybody here, I can just, it will be okay. It's anxiety almost personified in a way. I don't know. Yeah. It's like anxiety and narcissism, right? Like I am the person who is right for this job. Like yeah. if they only have me as their conduit, everything is going to be completely fine. And the thing is, it's not even just the father. I mean, uh, Christos uh, Stereoglou, who plays the father, like he has this almost accountant manner to him. Like he's not an evil tyrant either. You know, we were talking about like the casting of people who are like playing the heavy in mm-hmm, films. Yeah. And he doesn't fall into, you know, like I'm a boot stomping villain world. He yeah. looks like a guy that you'd be like, will you get me these TPS reports? You know, that's the kind right. of guy he is. And yet at home, he goes from like office manager guy to a person who wields this ultimate authority. And yet when he brings in the security guard from his own place to service the son, which to Yorgos led the most meant like he thought that that, you know, the idea that like it was really important to the dad that his son have sex while the daughters are never even thought of as sexual beings in that household to the mm-hmm. father, that he thought it really captured the hypocrisy of Greek families. That he thought Greek families were always just like so like proud of their sons for going out there and completely mm. like wanted to keep their daughter's sexuality out of mind, you know, very like buddy, yeah. buddy, punch you on the shoulder kind of way. But he brings this woman home to have sex with his son, uh, played by Anna uh, Kalatsidou. And Christina, the only character who gets a name, she has a tyrant streak in her too. You know, she sees that these yes. are people who can be controlled and she's, she's going to see what she can get out of it, what she can get for a hair, a hair band, what she can get for hair lotion. And so it doesn't indict like patriarchy necessarily as much as just indicts human nature. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. And that, that to me is, I don't know. I I just feel like that is what makes this film so universal. Um, And even though it's so weird, there's some element that you can relate to. It's so simple. It's so clean. It's so effective, right? And and we are being voyeuristic in this family. And I do think, unlike some of his other work, which I think lays out a little bit more, this movie really lets you, like, mirror your own life. What do you want to take from it? And I think you're right. Like, this is why this movie may have caught the world by storm, because you can see in it what you want to see. Yeah, and I think even Yorgos himself was really surprised by that. I, I felt that this was going to be, you know, a small little Greek film that, you know, very few people would see. Uh, so, you know, it just was too much uh, at one point for us. Uh, but, of course, you're happy about it. Uh, the thing is that... You know, you don't know what it is that you did <laughs> that, you know, uh, made the film be so successful. So you can not really repeat it. Um, and I don't think we really want to repeat uh, ourselves in, in that way. You know what really popped out for me in this watch? And again, I hate that we always keep having to bring this up, but like so much of the world has changed for me since this film came out you know, in terms of like the firsthand experience of, of what course, we've all yeah. seen in, in the world. Yeah. That since in the, since this movie came out in 2009, like we've now lived through a lot of a quarantine, like these kids are in, <laughs> it's yeah. like, it makes yeah. me identify with it a little bit more. We've lived through tyrancy and people attempting to mm-hmm. control. We've lived through a time of really talking about fake news and how people learn what words are. 
I mean, my God, the kids not understanding the definition of sea and zombie is not that much different than the fact that generations of kids here do not understand the difference between socialism and communism. You know, there's just yeah. like fear words that you get trained to, to have like this Pavlovian reaction. And yet what popped to me on this watch wasn't so much the suppression of ideas. It was about the contagiousness of ideas that once like a little bit of information gets into anybody's head in this film, they pass it on, you know, they pass on the idea of licking, you know, the pass right. on the idea of like, yes. do me the favor for this reward. And you get to see that idea kind of spread through the house and mutate. I love that idea of telephone, you know, and how we all interpret life. And I think that our whole life is telephone in a way. You know, we hear somebody, we see something, and then we try to duplicate it. You know, whether that is on the simplest level, you know, you have a favorite music artist or actor and they wear a jacket or a shirt or they dance a certain way. You're like, I want to learn that. I'm going to do that. And you start doing that, you know, and it's like, and that's not mind control, but it's sort of like monkey see monkey do, you know, it's like, um, and we associate ourselves with the people that we like and we want to be like them. And, you know, whether it's a friend group and this idea of what that must look like to an outside eye. You know, when you see, and we talked about this in Mean Girls, or we, you know, where where it's like this is, you know, uh, the Lizzie Kaplan character looks out at the whole grouping of people, and like this is this is the deal. Here's who they are. This is who we are. You know, and it's this outside eye that can kind of pick apart the weirdness. Um, and sometimes, I know for me personally, you know, being married allows me to see the weirdness in my family. Because I know where my family is and I've grown up with them. But then when you need that other eye to be like, uh, wait, will you do what? How's that go? You know, wait, you never did X, Y, Z? No. And, you know, and a majority of that is good stuff for different traditions and things like that. But, you know, there is that thing of what you take for granted or how you do something or how you learned how to do something. And until someone corrects you or, or shows you a different way, it's almost like you've been left in the dark. And I think we all have been. So that that's, you know... We just, we telephone off the people we are around. That's so true. That, that actually got me thinking of something uh, my boyfriend said to me last night, which was, um, he was talking to somebody about a script and it was a person that he thought was like so intelligent. And the mm. person mispronounced a really basic word. It, I think it was the word segue. Okay. I think the person said it like segi. Mm-hmm. And oh, like Sig, like yeah. it's spelled like S E G U E. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sieg. And my boyfriend was telling me this because I mispronounce a lot of words as well. Yeah. And like, and I've realized as I grow up that I mispronounce words just because I read all the time by myself in my house and didn't talk to people oh, about yeah. the words I was using. And my boyfriend was like, you know, being around you, I was now able, instead of being like, this guy, what's his problem? Or like correcting him, he was like, oh, he just immediately picked up on the fact that this guy was more of like an autodidact, that he had learned right. words through reading. But that idea of like how you get information when you are limited into where you're getting it from. You yeah. Know, like, like, I don't know. Like somebody said to me once, like to help me, explain, like they were like, whenever you hear somebody mispronounce a complicated word, never think they're dumb. Always think they're a person who's been trying to learn. And I love that idea. It stuck with me. Yeah. That, I mean, that's me. Like, I mean, it, they, there are, there are certain ways. Like I've read, like, like I remember I never heard John Bryan's name before. John Bryan, a musician mm -hmm. who has, uh, you know, done a lot of great stuff. I never heard his name before. And 
like I just pronounced it like John Bryan, you know, like I just gave it a different, I just gave it a different reading, you know, and it's, and yeah, you're right. It has nothing to do with me being dumb. It's just like, but if you, if you listen to the radio all the time, you'll understand everybody's name. Yeah. It's like, I find myself in those moments as well. It's, you know, it's just, you never heard somebody else use them. Yeah. And I do want to say like, I, the word biopic, which I get a lot of shit for because oh, people yeah. think I should say it biopic. That is actually mm-hmm. deliberate. I do feel like strongly it should still be biopic. And I'm just going to keep repeating it until people I agree with it. me, which will probably take to all. the end of my life and I'll probably lose. Mm-hmm. But I am committed to that. So don't worry. I know how other people pronounce it. I just refuse to abide by by that Well, law. that's a different thing. You're more than Your happy. law does not apply yeah. to me. I love it. I take it. I yeah, I respect you for your choices. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, when we start saying biography, then I will switch. All right. Well, you have a reason. You have a reason. Look, okay. it's the reason why people have all decided in New York to call Houston Street Houston. It's the reason why people in Los Feliz <laughs> call it Los Feliz. And but it's but if you were to correctly pronounce it, it would be Los Feliz. You know, but like there is an agreement that we have all made. And when you hear somebody say like, "Oh, you live in Los Feliz," you're like, "You're not from here. You don't know what the <laughs> fuck you're talking about." You know. Um, you know, whatever it's, you know, uh, but yeah, I'm guilty of that as well. And maybe this movie is about not judging. Maybe that movie is not about judging those who, who have that, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like maybe this, maybe this movie is saying to us, like, these kids didn't want to be this way. These kids are not these people, but yet, you know, if you're going to judge them, like, you know, it's almost like you don't know where they came from. Maybe this is a movie mm-hmm. about, uh, maybe this is a movie about sympathy. Like what you just said, like this is a movie where it's like, we ha- like we'll further shun these people because when that girl goes into the world, she'll be tre- she'll be ostracized. There's there's an interesting thing about you know, not cancel culture, but this idea of like you don't fit into the mold. That's it, and we give you one shot, and you're out the door. Like we're not very sympathetic to that kind of stuff. You know, uh, being different, being out of the loop. You know, it's it's about no no. You have to fit into our mold. Like your mold is weird. Our mold is not weird. You better get in. And if you're not of our mold, then you're fucking weird, and we'll always keep you weird. And that's high school. I mean, that's everything. You know, that's that we are. That's I think Americans are like you be individual, but individual within this parameter that we've already set up. You're right, and yeah, like imagining that girl if she when she hopefully gets out of that trunk, you know, going out into the world, the people that she first meets are going to think that she's hopelessly timid or sheltered or hasn't seen anything. And they won't understand that just to be where she is took an inner bravery and courage that none of us have, you know, to get to where she seems less than is actually more than any of us have ever been asked to tap. Right. It's like, I always get a little jealous of people who decided to become liberal without their parents being liberal. You know, people who grew up in conservative households and then like learned and thought and came to their own conclusions. I'm always like, that takes such a, such a strength to like take a step away from your family that way that I never got tested on. You know, my parents were like always very, very liberal. And I look so up to those people. I would, I would like to know that I would have done the same thing. I'm not going to talk about who it is, but I'll share you a story. Uh, I'll share you a story, Amy. Um, so I have a friend and we had been hanging out for a long time and we were on a movie together and she's absolutely lovely and fun and whatever. And we're, we're talking and she says, you know, uh, I'm, I, I grew up a Scientologist and I was like, really? I didn't know. I was like, did not know that. And she's like, yeah, she's like, I, 
I said, well, how did you get out? Like, what was the thing? And she's like, I saw that episode of South Park. And yeah, and she's like, and that episode, I was like, oh, born into it, uh, you know, and saw that. And that started a journey for her to reconfigure her entire life, right? And I just always think about that because, you know, so many people who are born into something, people who are born into a way of thinking, a way of believing uh, without questioning anything. I think we all need to question everything. And we can kind of fall back like, oh yeah, actually I questioned it and I like where I'm at. So I can be that. You don't have to like question and leave. But I was so impressed with that. But it's like, if she didn't see that episode, she would still be that person. But then she wouldn't be the person that I know. It's it's just, um, you know, there are ways of keeping people in these zones. And, and, it, and, that, and that actually... You know, it, it protects them. It makes, uh, I don't know what I'm saying more than just saying like, this happens all the time. It happens all the time in weird ways. And you don't know who is going to be that person or that thing that will at least allow you to question it. Whether that's, you know, even in the Amish community, the Rumspringer, I know the majority of people go back after mm-hmm. Rumspringer to be like, oh, actually, I like this better. And that's fine. Like, But at least they got, they get out. And that's exactly what happens here. I mean, because what yeah. radicalizes the daughter, it's Hollywood movies, yes. you know, and we never even watch her watch them, but we watch the effect that watching a movie has had on her. Yes. You know, the, I mean, the first thing we get is this idea from sitting alone, seeing her sit alone and talking to herself that one of the films that she has managed to trade uh, with Christina is Rocky Four. I mean, yes, and we get this is one of the few lines in English, so I'm excited to play it. Let's play that. to baseball. Είσαι ξυπνάκιας, έτσι. Κύριε Μπαλμπόα, ο κύριος Κρήτης στο τηλέφωνο. Ναι. And then from there, like, you know, you can kind of infer, like, what else she's seen. I mean, she's seen actually a fair amount of the Aophilus. She saw Rocky. She sees Jaws because she gets to give that lecture about the different types of sharks. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. well, Rocky Four is not on the AFI list, even though it is my second favorite Rocky. That's I fair. I can't All believe right. this. Fine. I can't even get Fine. into that. What? Really? Uh, Rocky <laughs> Four. Oh, come on. Uh, yeah. <gasps> Rocky Four is amazing. Rocky Four is amazing. Uh, um, and then she wants to be called Bruce. You know, yes. and there's that moment where you can tell that she hasn't shared information with her sister because she's like, call me Bruce. I want to be Bruce now. Call me Bruce. And they have that lovely game where the sister's like, Bruce, and she pretends to turn and be like, oh, yes, it's me. But the sister, because she doesn't have this cinema vocabulary, can't think of a name to call herself. You know, she calls, she's like, call me back. Back is like the right. toughest name she can think of because she's looking at a back and she hasn't been given the door that will open her into a new world of like ideas and images. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and we also get to know that the girls watch flash dance. I mean, we have to play a little bit of that dance number at the end where you can just hear the sound of her. You know, she doesn't have the words to even tell her parents how she's feeling, how she knows that she's been raised, that she's learned that all of these things have been kept for her. She has no vocabulary for this, but she has physical movements that she has picked up from film. I mean, 
now that I really think about it, there's so much in this film that is about how art and culture shape who we are and what we think. You know, I think the first time I watched this film, I was focused more on, I guess maybe what I'd call like the paving over of life, how these Mm -hmm. kids have been contained and any idea of like where they could have gone or grown and seen the world has been like covered in cement, you know, or in these walls and they're trapped. But this time watching it, I was struck more on how blades of grass still come through the cement, how this daughter is still able, what what helps her break free of this. Yeah. Anyway, in thinking about the way like music is you like, music is used here at culture, you have that scene where the dad is convincing them that their grandfather wrote Frank Sinatra, that their grandfather basically yes. is Frank Sinatra. And as he's playing a Frank Sinatra song, he's translating it for them, but it's all his own messages, you know, yes. listen to your dad, be good, behave yourself, you know, love the family. I guess it hadn't occurred to me until like right now to put that in the movies next to each other and say like, in one version, art is used to brainwash and control. And in the other version, art when you, when you're when you're allowed to oh, art when you're allowed to interpret it for yourself the way the daughter is mm. allows you to be free and art that is interpreted for you keeps you closed. Oh, I like this. I and like it. And that's exactly what this film is. His goal in making this film was creating a work of art that an audience member could take with them and interpret how they wanted. I mean, here's a clip of even him talking about this idea of interpretation being the key for what he does and not dictating you know that his films themselves are not dictators to be like here's my moral and here's how you should feel and Mm -hmm. this is what the world is saying so yes but we always try to make our films quite open so they're you know people can you know think whatever they want about them Uh, we just want to present you know a condition a situation explore characters and make them do things that we, we feel they're relevant to what we're exploring and then it's up to the the viewer to start, you know, thinking about these situations, be engaged, hopefully, with a film actively and not just passively, you know, watching a film that says, okay, this is like this and this is what happened and this is what you think about this situation. I mean, it's... I always try to avoid that and, you know, leave things open. And in the end, people can have their own minds and opinions about uh, what's going on in the film. So, uh, yeah, I'm really happy that people receive it differently. Sometimes people see too much into the film. Sometimes, you know, they can't really make anything out of it. I mean, it's... uh, But you can't control that if if you're making uh, this kind of film. Sorry, that all just really struck me that, like, the answer to this film is in the film itself. No, I think you're right. And and, And I feel like, I mean, look, what a... You know, I mean, that that's what we're here. This is what we're doing. We're talking we're talking about it. And I feel like that help, helps me understand it, too. Maybe this is, you know, we think about it as a movie about family, but we're also talking about it as a movie about the power of your own perspective and and how that creates who you are. You know, the ability to make your own choices. I mean, the, the idea of like free will or whatever, you know, that is, uh, is extremely integral and and challenging you and and you know when you're in whatever a cult or uh you know whatever scenario that you might be in you uh you lose that you're right and that makes me think more about the three siblings as individuals 
right. because they all have access to Christina, you know, this person from the outside world who comes like bearing ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, she's almost like a smallpox blanket of like contagious ideas that like will break apart this house. And she spends the most alone time with the brother who by nature is just such an incurious person, perhaps. Yeah. Like, he doesn't get anything out of it. You know, they have their awkward, quiet sex. And yet for as much as time uh, as time as he spends with her, nothing in her is contagious to him. Like he doesn't ever get curious. He's kind of the mediocre kid, even though he's the one who gets all the awards from the father, which yeah. I like that there's this idea in here about like how he gets all the praise. He gets all the stickers. He's the best kid. But he does nothing in this film that seems better than any of the other girls. Like the other girls beat him to the airplane. The other girls are smarter. The other girls are like more daring. He's so mediocre and he gets all the rewards and he does nothing with like this access to creativity that he's been handed well i mean look that i mean we're in a world right now where we're talking about like the ability of the white male to just have all the opportunities thrown at him and and even in a closed off system it's creating itself too yeah exactly but then where do you think this leaves the younger daughter the one with the kind of shorter smoother straight hair who doesn't rebel yet I don't know. I I mean, I think you're probably looking at like three versions of of one kid, you know, like it will now be up to her to find her which path she's going to go on. You know, she can go one way or the other. I don't know. That's true. Yeah. Like she has a whole story that starts when this ends. You know, is she going to maybe this is like what happened to the older brother. Is she going to start throwing her sister cake over the wall? Or is she going to be right. like, I have to get over that wall? I mean, maybe this movie is just saying to us, who do you want to be? Like, what is the version of you here? Like, who do you want to be the person who follows along? Or do you want to be the person who escapes from the trunk? Or do you want to be, you know, your choice is yours, you know? Yeah. And like, what pain are you going to put up with to get there? You know? Because like, yeah. that the older daughter leaves gets traumatized by Christina. You know, she does not seem happy about anything she's not happy about any of it she doesn't like it and she's angry and she's been hurt and she has to hurt herself in order to get out but like she goes through these challenges you know she takes the pain and uses it to create something else for her life the younger sister by the way like um i want to talk about her for a second you know she's played by uh a woman named Mary Tony, and she was um, a musician. Like, she's not really an actress. You know, she he cast her. She was in this, like, really cool kind of art house punk band, which you have to listen to a little bit of it. It's called Mary and the Boy. I just wanted to play a little bit because I love that he cast a musician. Like he looked at her stage yeah. presence and he was like, she can do this. Like, I believe that she can yeah, have this she's... performance. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, she's passed away now, but um, her, oh. her music is actually all on Spotify. If people want to listen to it, Mary and the Boy, it's really cool. I'm I'm now kind of taking it back and I, I kind of feel like, you know, this movie is what you make of it. And and I know that we we feel that with a lot of you know, a lot of the things that we see and, and, and do on the show is, you know, whatever we, you know, that's what art is. We just talked about that. And I'm, I'm so curious to see what other people's perspective on it was. 
I think we're talking about these big ideas and we're talking about Greek cinema, which is not really on the map or a very small point on the map, the cinema, not the island of Greece. But, uh, you know, how does this affect? This is a big movie. It's a really big movie. It's a really big movie. You know, when you hear about how Dogtooth came together, it was actually reminding me a lot of Night of the Living Dead. You know, mm-hmm. like what happens is Yorgos Lanthimos, um, he was working with an ad company, kind of like exactly okay. what um, George, Rom- George Romero was doing here. Well, I just realized Yorgos and George are like the same name anyways. Um, Yorgos oh, wow. is George in Greek. But so he's working with this ad agency and they help give him the money to make this film. You know, this really ultra low budget film, just like George Romero did. And it winds up helping to launch a new way of making film in Greece. You know, Because Greece is one of those countries where the government awards money to different filmmakers. You know, so okay. sort of like, we'll give you money, we'll give you money. And the types of films that the government has usually there up until this point liked to reward were usually like big comedies, kind of family comedy stuff, like Mm -hmm. nothing cerebral to this extent. That wasn't really their style or like, you know, serious dramas, but nothing like this, nothing kind of outside of the wall. And for Yogos Lanthimos and his friends, like he really wanted to rebel against kind of like this government funded Greek film center that really ran production. So that this film that happened kind of outside, you know, in this kind of independent wave became this film that really defined Greece, that Greece themselves decided to put it forth as their Oscar contender. It really did help open the door for a lot of weird stuff to come out of Greece. Because if you're a film nerd, you notice that like every, I don't know, five, six years, there's a country that suddenly pops and all of a sudden everybody's paying attention to it. And they're like, what is coming out of here? You know, I would say like 15, 20 years ago, it was Iran. Then it was Romania. Then it was Greece. And I guess maybe we're not kind of like looking to see what other country is going to pop next. Like who's going to yeah. be like this? Like, well, I mean, culture? Korea, right? I mean, to a certain degree, Parasite, I think definitely had yeah. that. I mean, I know Korea's Korean film is big, but internationally or or more commonplace to uh, a more naive film audience, I guess. I don't want to. No, you're right. It's like it's kind of like a confluence of, a t- of events, right? There's like the yeah. talent that's there. The talent has their friends who are also really ready to go whenever the spotlight of attention is put on them. So it's like this mix of like talent, spotlight, we're going to be looking for you guys, what's happening. And so that happened in Greece. And it started this thing that they called the Greek weird wave, which the filmmakers who are part of the Greek weird wave felt weird about it, you know, too. But it was these films that operated on this level of like high allegory, you know, like really interesting approaches to idea and thought. I mean, one of the columnists who's kind of like a film critic in Greece, he said that when Dogtooth got this Oscar nomination, you know, it meant three really important things for Greece. It meant that like Greek filmmakers needed to be extroverts. He said they needed to be extroverts and not like in cinema and everywhere. He said that it it tells Greek filmmakers that what's exportable means whatever just has an identity. Like you don't need to kind of make a mass common denominator thing. You need to make a thing with a certain identity, which I believe is true very much. And he said that three, that Dogtooth getting nominated, it's an investment from like Hollywood to developing Greek cinema. Which worked. Mm. And it didn't, yeah. I don't think Georgos felt constrained by it in his own way because then he leaves and he makes films in English, you know, right. after he makes his next film, Alps. Um, but yeah, like I, I love watching this kind of thing sprout up, you know, that this, I mean, it's a very different political system. Now, now I'm kind of going on like a small rant, but I just, yeah. I was thinking when I was watching this um, a couple of years ago, I was at the Istanbul Film Festival. And, you know, Turkey's government is a lot more repressive. Than, yeah. than the Greek, like the Greeks were sort of closed minded in how they delivered art. 
In Turkey, there's more of an institutional problem because Erdogan is a horrible person. Mm. Um, but like in Turkey, all films that are Turkish that get approved to be viewed, even at a film festival, have to get this Ministry of Culture stamp. And so the Turkish Ministry of Culture uses that as a way to repress films that disagree with Erdogan's politics and policies. And so I went to a film festival in Istanbul. And since you're not really allowed to make films that criticize the government directly, yeah, those filmmakers are also working in the world of allegory. Okay. You know, and they're using allegory to get ideas in there that the government can't say is anti-government. You know, yeah, like the, yeah. one that, the one that really pops out is I saw this film that was kind of in a tone like this um, because this was only maybe three years ago. Yeah. But it was about a town in Turkey where all of a sudden it just started to smell bad. Okay. And like the smell of the town was so awful that one by one people started to leave. People started to have breakdowns. There were like riots. It affected the economy. And it was a smell, you know, it was a movie about a smell, but it was clearly a movie about living in an authoritarian state, but it never had right. to say so. And I just worship films that operate in this vein, you know, that like that that aren't like our a lot of our usual kind of Oscar winnery movies here in America that are like, did you know that sexism is bad? And did you know that right. this was bad? You know, that they give you that space to feel like you can contribute to the conversation that the film is having with you, the audience. Yeah, I I, I really I like that. And I feel like, you know, we we I think as a culture often uh don't do that. Like we, like, you know, we, we are very, I think that we, we put sci-fi allegory and sci-fi work together a lot, but we very rarely do allegory, uh, in our drama. And I think when you do, uh, I'm going to defend mother for a second. It is uh, ridiculed, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and because it's a little bit more complex, it's a little bit, not to say that it was like the perfect film, but it's, it, it is a tougher pill for people to swallow. I think that Dogtooth is very exciting. And I think the world of cinema is so much better now that we have Yorgos Lanthimos here. And I love that he is working with more mainstream actors because I want this out there. I love The Favorite. And I know that Lobster is a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, even though it's a I wonderful film. I mean, me too. But, uh, and Sacred Deer, like, like Sacred Deer is the ultimate, like, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you thought The Lobster was weird, like, like I, I always said to people, the sacred deer makes the lobster look like a Farrelly Brothers comedy, like like you know, uh, and uh, you know, and it's sort of like he pushes, but I like that he is, you know, also doing something like the favorite, which is very it felt very different to me, uh, and in a good way. Like I mean, he's still retaining all the things that make him interesting, and what I think he makes what is the most interesting thing about him is his dynamics, his family dynamics, and that's and the way his characters are, and his characters are so p- perverse. Um, and I love it. And I can't imagine, though, that he has many... I mean, you said that people came in, they're like, we got to watch this movie, we got to watch this movie. Who's not getting this? You know what's interesting? I was going back and I was reading these reviews, and most of the ones I found were positive and completely befuddled. Like, okay. in, in a way that I found interesting. Like, it wasn't even so much... I'm taking all these different interpretations from it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more just like, here's a family where this happens. And wow, I'm confused, you know, right. and I like it, but I'm confused. You know, like Roger. Yeah, Ebert, like what did I see? He said that Dogtooth was like a car crash. He said, you cannot look away. You know, that the Greek director, Yorgos Lanthimos, he tells the story with complete command of visuals and performances. His cinema is like a series of family photographs of a family with something wrong with it. 
His dialogue sounds composed entirely of sentences memorized from tourist phrase books. The message I took away was, God help children whose parents insanely demand unquestioning obedience to their deranged standards. And so he takes, you know, he appreciates what's happening, but he takes this really literal view of what it's about. Yeah. You know, that it's just very much about like parents and children. And A.O. Scott also liked it, but he was kind of like, ah, you know, like your post viewing discourse may be more along the lines of what was that? I don't know. Weird. I wish I could some come up with something better than that. But since I can't invent a whole new vocabulary, I'll just leave it there. And I wonder if we had to grow up here as filmgoers in America to live through what we've lived through in order to grapple with this film on a deeper level and not just see it as literal. I mean, I did find a negative review who I don't want to call them out because they write for a blog. And I feel like anybody who writes for a blog, especially if you're not getting paid to do it, Godspeed. Um, But a person who wrote for a blog provided one of the only actual negative, negative reviews I could find Mm -hmm. of it. They said, they called it, a miserable, consistently worthless piece of work. They said it was infused with an oppressively deliberate pace that immediately alienates the viewer, compounded by Lanthimos's refusal or inability to offer up even the most basic of cinematic elements. The ensuing lack of plot and character development ensures that the movie, for the most part, boasts the feel of an especially incompetent compilation of irrelevant sketches. There's Hmm. little doubt that the movie's total absence of momentum quickly transforms it into an epically interminable experience. While the frustrating absence of context, ergo, why are the parents doing this to their kids, indicates that Lanthimos has no loftier goal than to shock the viewer. By the time the laughably abrupt, utterly meaningless conclusion rolls around, Dogtooth has certainly established itself as one of the most unpleasant and pervasively wrong-headed art house flicks to come out around in, su- in quite some time. Wow. With the movie's success among critics and awards groups alike, nothing short of inexplicable. Wow, wow, wow. Well, look, look, and that's... I will say that, you know, leaving the theater for Sacred Deer, I, I don't know what people thought of it. You know, I think that, 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 you know, I don't even know if you can enjoy these movies, like if that makes sense, right? It's sort of like, do I enjoy this or do I love talking about it? And I think that they can go synonymous, you know, they can go hand in hand. It It's not like, oh, I got to pop this back in. I got to, uh, but it, I like a movie that is more aggressive and, and, and trying to do this. I don't know. Um, I wanted to ask you a question that probably have never really asked you before, but Amy, do you think that the aliens would like this movie? <laughs> I wonder how closely this would uh, emulate aspects of the alien society. I wonder what they would make of us if this was the film that they saw. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I will say this is the most pared down, simplistic view of what human culture is for every reason we just spoke about. The want of being a protector, the uh, the problems with absolute power, the importance of art and your own perspective. It covers so much stuff. The need and, to rebel, the human yes. need to like be a teenager and figure out where is my freedom, what can I do here? And, and I and I so in that level, I'm looking at this and going, well, hell, like, I mean, this is the then this is what we said. You know, this is like not a straight up movie. You can read so much into it. it it's not telling you what to think. Maybe in many ways, this is the perfect movie for the aliens because it's uh, it it allows them to see us kind of unencumbered without any pomp and circumstance in a way. It kind of just presents a lot of things. Um, no, I, I like that. I mean, that's interesting because like when this became the listener's choice, there's a part of me that's like, oh, I'm really excited to talk about that. I love how weird everybody is. Well done, guys. Well fucking done. But then part of me was also thinking, although, of course, it's going to be like, 
the lobster or the favorite, right? Like if we put right. a Yorgos Lanthimos in, which I would love to do, it'll be one of those. But now that we're talking about it more, I think there is an argument to be made that the purity of this one yes. and the flexibility of it gives it its strength. I agree. And I think that for that reason, it is on my short list to go to the aliens because I think it encapsulates so many things that we talked about, but also so many broader things. And yes, you can look at it in one way and go, this is a fucked up family, but it's so much more than that. And I think a good movie can kind of hide a deeper message in a very simplistic tone. You know, like, okay, this is, you know, you can just go, oh my God, it's so fucked up when the dad did that. Oh, she punched herself in the face. But, you know... Or do you challenge yourself to go deeper? Yeah. So right now, it's edging it out. And I would never have guessed I was going to say that. No, no, me neither. Well done, audience. We are very well, grateful that you picked this film. And we are grateful to end yet another miniseries. And, uh, as this it's was a, a new, fun one. A really fun one. And as we end this one, I think we're going to go into an actually maybe a little bit lighter. Or maybe not. I don't know. We're going to go. We're going to talk about another grand issue in our life. We've talked about, you know, we've talked about high school. We have talked about uh, being scared. We've talked about fucked up families. And now it is time for us to talk a little bit about love. Uh, as our next series is, Amy, give them the name. You got the name. It was so good. I love it. It's called Couple Goals. It's so what it. we're going to be doing is films about couples. Not necessarily like romantic comedies we were thinking about romantic comedies for a second but we were like you know couple goals like a lot of these films maybe have relationships that you don't want to swoon over but you want to tangle yeah. with you want to watch you want to wrestle and so I'm, I'm curious to talk about these couple goals and we did come up with a hashtag for this one because we're going to be doing of course an audience pick for that as well the hashtag is hashtag unsmoochable so that Ooh. is what you'll be using to submit your listener pick for our Couple Goal miniseries. And we will tell you the very first of our films in the Couple Goal miniseries, because I don't even think it's a surprise. It's one we've clearly been agitating for for years. We're going to kick off this series with When Harry Met Sally. I cannot wait. Don't fuck with Mr. Zero. Um, take a listen to the trailer. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. Greg? No, I don't like to eat between meals. <sighs> I'll roll down the window. A faceless guy rips off your clothes, and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I varied it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Harry Metzelli, uh, when Harry Metzelli, is available wherever you can stream your films. Uh, Amy, we will revisit Fucked Up Families on our Twitch stream. And we will then, I think, definitively have a conversation with everyone listening and uh, with each other to find out which one we want to send to space. How about that? I love it. I love it. Let's do it. And Paul, happy new year, man. I'm excited happy to embark on the new year of watching movies with you. My favorite I movie companion. Too. 
It's been so much fun. And a big thank you to Rolling Stone Magazine for giving us a shout out uh, as one of the best podcasts of last year. Uh, so thank you, Rolling Stone. Um, we love doing the show. And yeah. the more you can tell people about it and uh, and let people know, it's it, it helps. We have a great audience and it keeps on building. And uh, just keep on getting the word out, people, because we rely on your word of mouth. We do. Um, the shout outs mean a lot because we're, you know, we're so deep into doing this. We're not like the shiny kid, but the fact yeah. that we're still being appreciated it makes my heart warm and speaking of that please rate and review us on itunes i know it's a small little thing but it makes such a world of difference we are always told that that is a big big deal and uh so we really would appreciate you doing that um all right amy 2021 here we are let's go let's go let's go